you got to keep the big picture that, hey, we're changing the world. We're changing the world. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse to their industry. Pulse Welcome to, their to industry. Electric People. We have Dave Madsen on the show. Check out Tim Ballard. Jeff Curl. Sheckler. Kenzie Watts. The League presents Electric People. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Electric People. It is an honor to have Mr. Apollo Ono with us today. What's up, Apollo? How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me. It's going great, man. We spent some time together. So for our, for our listeners, um, if you don't know Apollo Ono, just jump on the internet by now, right? Because it's all there. Eight-time Olympic uh, medalist, most decorated uh, athlete in Winter Olympics history. Also... Do we say reality TV star? Can we call it that? With sure. dancing, dancing sure, with the stars, that's exactly champion. What it, is. <laughs> it were <laughs> the reality man. show. Yeah, there was like Apollo Ono wave, like when that was going on. Super cool. Um, entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, and all around mental giant and performance specialist. So, thank you for joining us today, yeah, man. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, so, I was telling the group today. You just finished doing a talk for our West Coast Sales uh, Leadership Group. Um, here at Sunrun. And I told the guys that, that you know, our, our paths had crossed. We're from the same hometown mm-hmm. and we hung out kind of at the same spot as kids. Really glad to see you made it out of the other side of that town, healthy and thriving. <laughs> <Likewise>. And <laughs> Likewise. we're both on the other side. We made it out, dude. Were Not, you, were, didn't you skate too? Yeah, different kinds of skating. So I'm a, I'm a shameless, aggressive inline skater from the 90s. You know what I mean? I like that. Apollo here also skated in the 90s, but he turned it into eight. Gold me- or he was a little faster. He was a little faster. Yeah, it wasn't about speed for me, but maybe it should have been. <laughs> this is, I'm not the subject of this podcast. So, um, but the interesting thing for me is um, I know a little bit about your upbringing and, and, and was able to witness like the kind of like the local um, rise to fame when people knew your name and you started having these accomplishments. So I've always been fascinated by your story. But one of the things that I've appreciated most about it is it doesn't stop with the part that everybody in America witnessed in their, in their living rooms. You've taken those principles and gone on to, to apply them to other parts of your life. And it seems to me that Olympic athlete is not Apollo Ono. It, that was part of your life, but it's not your entire life. Is that, so, is that intentional? Is that something by design, the, the, the constant moving forward? And where, where does all that come from? Well, I think that the identity that I had as the Olympic athlete was, if you had asked me that when I was 17, 18 years old, <clears throat> I probably would have... You know, and actually, I was asked that. What do you want to do when you retire? And I was like, what do you mean when I retire? Like, I, I was, this was, I was, I'm built for this. I'm on earth for this particular reason, nothing else. This is the only thing that I care about. It's the only thing that I'm good about, good at. And a lot of people can probably relate to that, right? When you do a career, when you're in a career path for a long period of time, and then at some point, I call it the great divorce, that, that is shattered. And so my first true love was the Olympic path. And I thought, that's what I was built for. Like my life would be set once I accomplished that goal and everything would be okay. Very quickly that I realized that these are just chapters in my book. I think a lot of it comes from my father. So my father being Japanese American, him kind of instilling within me like these deeper philosophical beliefs and systems to inquire to my inner self of like, why am I here? What do I want out of life? What, is, what, what does life want out of me? Um, do I have a deeper purpose? What am I tied to? What are my values? 
you know, do, you know, what am I good at? Just all these kind of questions to continue to keep asking myself. And it didn't stop at the Olympic level. Actually, that was just the first chapter. And so my father asked, told me when I was really young, he's like, look, Paul, I know you're winning a lot of medals. You're doing very well in short track. This is going to be but one part of your entire life. And it'll be an important life, but this is not the reason why you're here. It's how you harness this, these lessons and insights and potentially either give back to your communities, help yourself grow and go in perhaps a completely different direction that will be a part of your defining character, but not an endpoint. And I talk as if I knew those things then. I didn't. Yeah. I really didn't know yeah. those things. You, well, I mean, even to say, like, you know, this is my only path. At 17, right, most people don't know what they're doing on Friday, <laughs> let alone to have the clarity or resolve to say that. But you, you, you often talk about your dad yeah. in a similar light. And it was funny. We were talking on the phone because I didn't know you, like, well growing up, but I knew who you were, and we crossed paths. And I remember your dad. I remember your dad he was always there and yeah. he was always, you know, it, it's funny to, to hear you now talk about like kind of this like deeper, like you, it seems like you got these lessons as maybe 12, 13, 14 year olds that now as a 38 year old man, you're like, what, where did that seed start? Yeah. It's and, really valuable. And I think that my dad, and I don't know why or how he decided to go on that path of like trying to teach me by asking me questions and forcing me, you know, like when, I would ask him a question. Instead of him giving me a yes or no, he would respond back with a question. And it was really frustrating as a yeah, young kid. He was like, what the hell, dude? Like, dad, I just want a freaking answer. Yeah. But I, I recognize now, like, what he was doing is he was teaching me to always question, to dig deeper, to find and validate. And, you know, that, that led me down the path of, I think, a greater understanding of myself and a deeper, you know, curiosity around how does this world work what are my fundamental beliefs? And he did that at a really young age. Like, at a, like it, when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, he was really adamant about pushing me in that direction. And like you said, my dad was at the roller rink. He was at the swim meets. He was at the ice skating rink. Like my dad, he was very hands-on. Well, and as a single dad that's working too, that's not. You it's know hard. what it reminds me of is, have you seen Lewis Hamilton's interview with David Letterman? Mm, on no. Yeah, so Letterman no. has this new, you know, this new Netflix yeah. show. You should watch the interview because I thought about that when I was thinking about this conversation yeah. where, you know, Lewis Hamilton grew up in, in, in the UK, right? Mm -hmm. And didn't have any ties to, to racing. Mm -hmm. Kind of like you didn't early on, like your first generation racer, right? Yep. And um, his dad was looking for something to put him into. And him and his dad kind of went like hand in hand through this journey and kind of had this amazing close bond. And Building go-karts and... Yeah, like his dad having powerful. multiple jobs and, and would come home at night and, and build cards. And so one of the things that I thought was interesting that from that, and just tell me if any of this relates, but he was saying that because they didn't have all these means, they didn't have like a life of training, they didn't have mechanics and things like that. He was saying when they were at the track, he was saying, okay, Lewis, all the kids are breaking here you need to just drive 10 feet further and break later and figure it out. So they kind of like figured this path out together. It's a beautiful thing. That's cool. And you know, when, when you talk about your dad, like taking you to, well, maybe tell our listeners like what it was like. And I feel like your podcasts always start with, this is kind of how I got into it, but maybe let's talk about that. And, 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 and from your talk earlier today, it seemed like he had a greater vision kind of the whole time. He absolutely had a greater vision. And a lot of those <laughs> things that you said about Lewis Hamilton, they resonate because they're very similar to what my dad had in mind. You know, I think I'm not a, I'm not a parent yet, right? But I can assume like when you have a child and you care about that child, you believe that child can do anything and everything. 
You just believe because it's, that's your bloodline. And you try to give him or her everything that you have. That's what my dad did. He sacrificed everything for me. And he gave me an abundance of love and hard love at the same time growing in a single parent household. But he, he curated like someone who was always wanting to make his dad proud. Like that's what I, that's what I was striving for. That's what I was hungry for is to get that good job. Hmm. And instead of my dad saying, good job, you're so good, it was always like, good job, you must have tried so hard. So he was like, he was like, my dad was ahead of the game, man. He was Validating like a real the life. Well, it feels yeah. It feels and the process. He was huge about that. He used to ask, he used to tell me all the time when I wouldn't win, he'd be like, look, do not ask whether you will win or not. That's not your account. Your account is to carry the struggle further. And I was like, it's like I'm 15 years old. Like, what does that even mean? What is he, who's I like account? need to hear it again. You know? like, yeah. um, but, uh, you know, like again, like that deeper meaning now as a 38 year old, even in my 30s, when I retired from sport is when they really became solidified and they, and they, they forced me to start to bring all of these lessons and insights back into play where I took them from the sporting world growing up in you know, the Pacific Northwest and applying them in other areas of my life. And then when I get off, well, what I call it my true north, when I'm starting to go in this direction or I'm getting distracted in this direction, it brings me back center to say like, hey, don't forget to keep this your main core principle. These are the things, here's what you believe in and don't get distracted because that's shiny over there. Because it's shiny over there because of where you're standing, not because it's actually shiny. Mm. You go over there, it's no longer shiny. You're looking back on the spot that you were in, you're like, that looks pretty shiny. And then you're just playing ping pong. So it's easy to do that in today's society. And I didn't know that, man. 2010, I was like, I need to say yes to every single thing out there in the world when I retire because I'm so deeply afraid of not finding something that will give me the same passion and happiness and fulfillment that sport did. And I also want to exceed in the same level of expectation that I had in sport, which was impossible. That'd be the number one businessman in the world. What does that even mean, right? That's that's an internal quest and, and purpose. So that took a lot of failure, a lot of trial and error, a lot of falling right on my face. I wouldn't change any of it, but all that stemmed from this upbringing of having my dad there who, you know, I don't know if he was, re- I, actually, I do know, he wasn't reading. These are just philosophical beliefs that he has mm. around his own personal experiences of trying to survive in this country without having to speak English, without knowing the language when he first came here, not having any money and just figuring it out. And so, like you said, Lewis Hamilton and dad would analyze the track. We used to do that with skating. Yeah. Except my dad didn't know anything about speed skating. He was just kind of that's giving- the same thing. Yeah. Same thing. It's interesting because it's the immigrant mentality as well. It's when they come over, they have a vision for this downline that that they're trying to create, right? It's like they're not coming there necessarily for themselves. They're coming there for you. Right. So Next generation. um, And it's interesting because like Tiger Woods, the the Williams sisters, even like Andre Agassi, they all have like very influential fathers in their lives. Yeah. How much do you think... In your younger career, did you feel like you were doing it out of obligation for your dad or for yourself? I'd say when I was very young, a lot of it was out of obligation. So, you know, we hear about these, not to put the pun, but, you know, we hear about tiger parents, right? Uh, My dad was the epitome of that. So growing up in the roller rink, it was raining all the time in the wintertime in the Pacific Northwest. So we couldn't skate outside in preparation for the national championships that were being held somewhere in Pensacola, Florida, Orlando, or maybe wherever, you know, in, in Lincoln, Nebraska. <clears throat> and so what my dad did what he, what he knew is whenever it wasn't raining and if it was morning, he'd wake me up. 3.30 in the morning, 11 years old, sure, time to get up. 
wakes me up, drives me to some empty school or church parking lot, put the, put the lights on in his Volkswagen Rabbit, and I'm wearing like a, a helmet with a miner's light <laughs> taped to the front, and I'm just like <laughs> skating around. Like, I mean, I'm 11 years old. I mean, who's running the training program here? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. right, is but this that's the, the right amount of sleep to nutrition? You're just yeah, going. Yeah, I mean, like... this, is, this, goes above, this goes above and beyond. I'm pretty sure that was like harmful, but yeah, I was like child abuse today. returns, right? But he, he forced me to do that. And, and, and that in itself created its own set of micro traumas, right? And like disdain for my father at a young right. age, but also taught me something else, which was really powerful around commitment and level of work and you're tired, you don't want to be here, but you go and do it anyway. And, uh, you know, my dad was, uh, he was just, he was, wasn't perfect, right? But he was perfect for what we had in my scenario. And so the one takeaway is like, man, I hope to be like my father in so many aspects when I do have a family. And that mm. becomes a really big important part of how do I help transfer those lessons that I learned as a kid to this next generation that is, hyper-distracted, that has both suicide and depression rates that would astonish people from the ages of six to 12 years old. I'm like, what? Kids are killing themselves at 12 years old, six years old? This is insane. So we live in a society that is different today than when 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 we grew up, totally different, but we have the same level of expectation of mental toughness and hardness of when we grew up, but the kids have a different experience. So you can't possibly cookie cutter and just blanket envelope these things. They have to be presented in a different way. And at the end of the day, it's still here, right? And so this was, and always has been my greatest tool or my weakest link. And it's like the knife, right? It can carve something beautiful or it can, you can cut yourself yeah. or stab yourself in the back. It's all about how you wield that tool. And uh, my dad was just a huge proponent, man, of like all the time telling me, there's nothing that you cannot, you can be anything that you want to be. And we, you know, we hear that like growing up from people, but my dad, like the way he said it and the frequency that he said that made me actually start to believe that there was nothing that I could not do. Nothing. Doesn't matter my size, height, weight, nothing. That I could somehow override that science that was there through some other form of overpowering and creating a new set of epigenetics, right? The crazy thing though is that's, he's right. Like, it almost seems like, you know, when you're a kid, you believe you can do anything. You actually can. Mm -hmm. The weird thing is the filters around that age after the miner's light years, like, it's such a beautiful image of you, like, I mean, it probably didn't feel beautiful at the time, but like, out skating with your dad who didn't know anything about skating, he just thought this might be something that helps and then you, to like yeah, the that new scene, souls no, just that, like that scene needs to be in the movie i know, you know like, I mean? like that's this that's part of the scene in the movie you're just these old souls navigating this yeah. mortal experience together you know but the the crazy thing is once you hit 12 13 14 you start to question whether it's possible and i think the value of that programming from somebody whose life was that you can leave japan and you was he from japan is that yep. right you can leave japan you can come here with nothing and you can have success yeah he was right it's our weird brains that well, start to think that he's not. Well, as you mature, the inner voice starts to become louder. Right. Right. That's a better and, way to say and, it. Yes. And also, you also start to taste what pain feels like physically, mentally, mm-hmm. emotionally. Socially. You're embarrassed in school. Yep. Right. Someone makes fun of you. You like this girl. She doesn't like you. You like this guy. doesn't like you. Something happens. And I, ca- I call them microtraumas. Whatever. There's like little flares in mm-hmm. your life. Those flares and those microtraumas, those things are shaping your character as you grow. And by the time you leave high school and you leave a collegiate experience, that that defining moments, a lot of how you react from like you're 21 till you're 30, 
a lot of that is predominantly based upon your 10 to 14 years old, 10 yeah. to 15 years old range. That's right. And, and we, we stay stuck into those. And so when we see people that we meet, like, that guy always seems really defensive, right? Well, that's Stuff probably that true, happened. but, like, something happened there. Like, whatever. I, you, know, you don't have to dive deep with that guy, but how do, you, how, do you, how do we all figure out ways that we can move beyond that self 1.0? Because that's a standardized condition mechanism. I have, my kids are 13, I have three girls, they're 13, 10, and seven. Mm-hmm. And my oldest, it's, at, it's honestly like a little bit sad because three years ago, she believed she could do anything. Now she's two years into junior high. You can see the doubts creeping in. It's like you can see just the change. And then my 10 year old is still in, I can do anything. My seven year old still is, thinks she can be anything. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. all of a sudden you see like the world start breaking down your kid a little bit, right? That's fascinating. But um, yeah, and it's scary as a parent because you're just like, how do you navigate this? But um, I'm I'm, I'm really like your dad just seems like this like mythological like movie, like a Mr. Miyagi type, like from the movie, you know, just like, you, man, he is. I wish and, he was here. Like, my, all He's my dad awesome. would we say to me, on, like dude. my dad would just be like, Hey, like he'd see me do like something good. He'd be like, you know, uh, a donut with no hole is a Danish, you know, like he would just say things like that. To <laughs> and me. you're like, and I'm like, I don't even think that I'm like, what? He'd just be like, think about it. And then he'd just walk away. You know, like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so like, he just do stuff like that. But the one question I have is, um, <clears throat> short track, yeah. Skaters yeah. have impossibly large quads, yeah. right? <laughs> impossibly large quads and like booty and everything. Yeah. At what point did you realize there was no gene that fit you? That was when I was uh, 17 and a half. Yeah, I was going to say, because when you were a teen, we were wearing some big ass pants. Yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah and I actually so remember 17, you couldn't fit in the jeans. At 17, like, you went sweats <laughs> 17, from that point 18, forward. Yeah, you know, you're right. Uh, it was ridiculous how big, I mean, my hamstring would just hang down. Yeah. It was gross. And I remember walking one time <laughs> and I was, in, I, was in, I was in ninth grade. No, it was ninth or 10th grade. And I was walking in Colorado Springs. And I was walking up the steps in this high school. And um, I, I was wearing shorts and I heard these girls behind me and they were like, what's wrong with his calves? Because <laughs> they were just all veiny and like shredded and huge. And, and never what kid in like, high school works their legs that hard? Like, like, yeah, what, yeah, and like being as short as I was and like, what is the deal with like, this guy? He had like you know? 30 inch quads. His just heels like haven't touched the ground since he's been alive. Like this is unbelievable. <laughs> you know? Just walks on his toes. This is unreal. Always, you know? yeah. Teach this guy to walk properly. Uh, yeah, th- that's funny you said that. Short track speed skater bodies is really, really strange. And, and, you know, it's, we basically try to have the lightest, you know, from the waist up, we try to be Mm -hmm. as light as humanly possible. And I got to the point where- tree trunk legs. Yeah, I was so obsessed about losing all this excess muscle mass up top, I wouldn't even carry my own bags. I didn't want to activate any musculature in any capacity. I, I want it to completely atrophy. We heard stories of guys like putting themselves in a sling, like You're in the summer. You're kidding me! Like, like <laughs> that's, that's so sling. extreme. <laughs> it's completely, yeah, completely. But you know, they're trying to shave like you know yeah, pounds yeah. off the body. So Tour de France cyclists will do this. They'll basically yeah. go ride for hundred miles, come back, not eat, go to sleep, and then the rest of the night put themselves in a sling to basically atrophy Less all do they body. move. Well, and then their body's burning calories all night. Yeah. Um, so short track. I remember when it first became an event in the Olympics, so it was like mid-90s, right? Ish. It was uh, 88. Eight, okay. Yeah. So, um, and then I was living in Salt Lake during the 02 Winter Games, yeah. and that was kind of when you sprung on the scene. Yeah. 
and I just remember being fascinated. Short Track, it's like, and if anyone's listening that hasn't watched it, it's almost like a full contact, like ice skating race yeah. around the track. And mm. Apollo comes on, he's and he's like the man. He's got the hair. It's like an Andre Agassi had the ish. Hair. Like, <laughs> the hair, you know, the bandana. Care. He had the hair, like the swagger. Yeah. We're like, who is this guy? Like, just you know. And then the way you would race, you it seemed like you always hung at the back. Yeah. And on the final lap, you're just like, oh shit! Like, yeah. here he comes. You know. Walk us through kind of your mindset in, I mean, just in general in a race. And then I'm sure every big event you had a specific strategy depending on who you were going against. But um, what is it about that hanging at the back and then just like going? So the hang in the back, it is a strategy. Conserve um, energy, I'm guessing. Conserve energy. You're drafting. You get 32% less um, less energy expenditure between 25 and 32% depending on where you are if you're right behind someone else in front of you. And if you're mm. number two or three, it's like a train. You're almost getting pulled around the track. Like it, it's quite and easy. And you guys work as a team in those no, events? You're not at supposed all? to. It's supposed to be completely individual, but it's okay. by referee discretion. So okay. most of the international teams like South Korea and China, they would always team skate and work together. So if they have three in one final, they would use two to and mess with And they'd say one guy. we're designating, it's almost like cycling where That's it's right. like, Lance Armstrong, Correct. we're gonna we're gonna help him win, yep. so to speak. And so strategically, I I I liked skating from the back because I always thought that that was a I was really good at attacking at the last minute because I was very ballistic and powerful naturally as a skater. And then, and the, we can go down this rabbit hole if you want, but at some point I started self sabotaging because I started to get a thrill out of seeing how long I could delay that attack. Mm. So you know. Ideally, you'd, you'd, you'd probably put the, full, the first attack like two and a half laps to go. Mm. That gives you a full lap to really start passing. I would change it to like two laps, then a lap and a half, then like a lap and a quarter, then like one lap to go, then like a half a lap, then like let me see if I can pass them at the finish line coming out of the last corner. It is very dangerous, right? Because these are not, you know, every coach I've ever had will always tell you, you would have won three or four more world championships at least, and maybe two or three more medals if you, if you skated from around. the front. Right. Um, hmm. So I associated this back of the pack skating with achieving this impossible outcome. So if you want to dive even deeper down to this and peel back the layers and texture, it was very challenging for me, especially in the younger years of my life, to put myself completely out there and skate from the front and then have someone pass me on the outside. We call it over the top. It means they're going so much faster than you. That was a fear of mine. I didn't want to ever feel what that was like because that would mean revealing my weakness to the world. So if, even if I was in the back and I didn't win, well, it's because I put myself in this impossible position, so we couldn't possibly expect you to win Crazy. that race. But then I would somehow pull it off. And then that became an addiction to where I was wanting these impossible scenarios of three Chinese, three South Korean, two Canadians, and Apollo in a men's 1,500-meter superfinal and I somehow pull it off. But that's also, that's also know, what's it's, it's, um, like catapulted your stardom too though. I was gonna say like, the same thing. It's like it's, it's part of what made you the superstar is that flair for the dramatic, it's right? danger and like this, yeah, like you know, people watching and being like, yeah. go, move now. I mean, it's the most intense <clears throat> winter yeah. sport there is, the I fact, think. The fact that you come from such dominance in such an obscure sport. Yeah. It's, it's, 
I don't know anybody besides you that does this sport, right? That's how <laughs> obscure it is, right? Like I just, yeah. it's, and most people listening probably don't know anybody that does it either. But you're right because I'm not a speed skater. I'm a fan, right? And mm -hmm. so it's like, I, I think about this because I watch a lot of Supercross right. and I, I, I can't stand people that win championships by getting third place all the time. And I want to just see a fight. Point, I want to see a win, knockout. Yeah. I'm, right. I, am, I am seeking respite from the grind of my day. Right. And so when somebody that's like, I don't know anything about speed skating, but the fact that we do and then it, you know that that's it, your thing. And yeah. it became must-watch TV, right? It's like during the 02, 06, and 10 Olympics, like I'm looking at the Olympic schedule when is the short track, you know what I mean? <laughs> because awesome. you're skating, right? So, yeah. and you, it's like you turned a sport into this must-watch TV. But to yeah. your point, how many more could you have won had you just... I mean, it's all, look, it's hindsight 2020. I, I probably wouldn't change anything. I mean, the style of my skating was fulfilling some deeper desire that I had, <clears throat> whether it was a flair. I mean, one of my closest friends who I grew up with skating, I met him when I was 12, like on a skating trip. Um, we're still, we still work together today, like really strong. And he, he asked me like two years ago, he's like, hey, never really asked you, but like, have you ever like wondered why you never skated from the front? Like we always would talk about it as a team and be like, and talk like, man, he would be so much better if he did. And my thought was like, but the races wouldn't be so fun to watch. Like it wouldn't, I don't think I would have had the same thrill and desire to be like clutch, you know? Yeah, because I heard you talk about it as an addiction and I heard you like, it, like, like impressively, like say, hey, maybe this was a weakness and maybe I was seeking ego here, yeah. but it was a hell of a lot of fun to watch. And, mm. and I don't know that I would have it was watched. fun to do. Yeah, I'm sure it <laughs> yeah. looked fun. And I think that like to see, that's what sport is kind of about is seeing somebody yeah that doesn't look like you, that's doing something that you cannot do, do something at such an amazing level. Like mm. I remember watching, I was at the fight when Conor McGregor beat Nate Diaz, fighting two weight classes up. Yeah. And I was like, this guy is out of his mind. Yeah. But I've also watched a lot of Floyd Mayweather fights where I'm like, yeah, I mean, he got the guy tired and put him down. Conor is like, this guy has got me. Like he's, mm -hmm. he's got my heart. I don't know if yeah. he's technically the best fighter, but it's the fight I no, but you don't care. I mean, it's, right. it's about, it's the same reason why people loved watching Tyson. That's yeah. exactly right. It's and we'll love watching Tyson again in like yeah. three and a half weeks. It, oh, he's fighting again. He's fighting, he's fighting on a, November yeah. 28th. He'll, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to digress too much here, but yeah, we can go up, <laughs> we can get on some tangents. Yeah. I just had, a, yeah, that's an interesting, by the way, that is a very interesting tangent. Um, but I think that we, I mean, look, especially as Americans, we love the flair for like, Two strikes, three balls, bases mm -hmm. loaded. That's what's up. Like, yeah. like we like that. Mm -hmm. Like we like it when the world is stacked against something or someone or us, and we somehow win in a spectacular fashion. Yeah, because you don't. We have, don't even like. Don't, we don't like it when you win the other way. Yeah, because you don't have a. <laughs> if you're too dominant, it's too boring. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You don't like that. I'm, starting, I'm gonna start rooting for the other guy. You exactly. don't have a perfect record. No, right? you don't have no, a perfect record. Not even close. But you're still relevant. That's the thing. It's the same as Connor. Connor doesn't have the best record in the MMA, but he yields the highest pay per view. <clears throat> so he's playing a game that other people aren't playing. And I don't know, because I have heard you be, I don't want to call it self deprecating, but maybe a little bit where you're like, man, I probably could have done that better. But I'm like, from a fan, no, don't I, change that, dude. Don't, yeah. I'm good with it. Like, we're fine to lose a race every now and then if we can, like, because that's what you're, and, 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 
you think about what it what it activates, like what the Olympic spirit activates in the fan, which I don't know if you know right. much about that. I mean, you probably even watch from a different level. I was a fan as an athlete. I'm saying, but yeah. you but you also know what it takes. Yeah. Right? I used to like watching Bodie. That was my guy. Really? Yeah, just I was like, this guy just seems like he doesn't care about anyone or anything. So you know what that's like. And he like he either wins in a spectacular fashion or he's like way Crashes off the course. In Crashes in yeah. yeah. But that's how that's how it that's how it felt because it's like, man, I don't need you. Like I feel like a lot of times fans aren't chasing what athletes are chasing because athletes are chasing perfection. They're chasing a record. They're chasing wins. Yeah. We're seeking escape, right? So right. it's like. I want, my friends are here, man. We got wings and we want to have a good time. And that was amazing. Yeah, you want you know to see I mean? the jump that no one's done. That's right. You want to see the thing that no one's attempted. I mean, what, that's human nature. We what was that. the lowest point during it all? <clears throat> the lowest point, well, there's been many low points. Uh, I, I don't want to say when I was 15, people don't know this, but my first Olympic trials, I got dead last. The previous year, I was number one. So in less than nine months, I went from being number one in the United States to being dead last. So you, I was, won, you won the national championship at 14. I was, I was the favored to make the Olympic team and Got represent it. the U.S. in the 98 Olympic Games. You would be one of the youngest Olympians ever. Would be the, yeah, I, was, yeah, I would have been 15. Phelps was 15 at his first, his first games. Uh, and, and, and I threw it away. That was one moment, which was the lowest, but I was too young to have it really impact me mm, to understand what I was throwing away. Bounce yeah. back very quick. Yeah. Um, the, 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 uh, the one lowest moment I would say was in, this was a non-Olympic year. This was 2008, 2009 season. So to give you context, I was in amazing shape. My technique, my efficiency, everything was like this. I was doing everything right. I had great coaches, equipment was great. I felt great on the ice. The, the training was falling in line. Everything seemed to be working. Except when I got to the world championships, I had one of the worst performances I've had almost in my entire career. And it wasn't because I was falling down and getting disqualified. I just didn't perform. And I had never been in that position psychologically to where someone else on the team was actually performing better than me. I was always King Kong. I was always the king in the mm -hmm. US. No one could threaten my throne, right? And I made sure of that. Like I would assert my dominance every day on the ice. Every single day. Even practice, anything. Every day was a competition for me to show them that I am stronger mentally and physically than everybody else. Mm -hmm. sounds every exhausting, day. Apollo. Well, it's it like, it's like- It was very exhausting. It's when you hear Michael Jordan talk about yeah. practice, right? It, he would, it was same approach. Yeah, just a, like a standard of excellence that I required for myself, which then I think the team also was forced to be required. But then when someone who was younger and frankly more talented than I started to come through the ranks but didn't yet know how good they were, uh, and I saw how good they were because there was like five guys in the world in my entire you know 17-year career I ever saw who I was like, that guy understands it. He gets it. He has it. He has that thing, that that ethos, that feeling, that mojo that I don't think most of the world has. He, but he was one of those guys. And he didn't even know that he had it yet. He was just doing it naturally. And then we went to that World Championships in, in 09, and I just had this subpar performance. It forced me to essentially isolate myself. And, I, and instead of going back to the team and training with the team in the summer, I actually moved from Salt Lake City. I went and drove to Colorado Springs, kind of where my Olympic training center roots were. And I spent like four months alone 
training completely alone. I like talked to very little people in the Olympic Training Center. And it was because- How old are you then? This is 99, you said? Man, this, no, this was, uh, this was in 2009. So, oh, 2009. Yeah, I mean, I was, this is the, to- the tail end of my career. Yeah, yeah. Right? So I'm at a point where I'm like, you know, 25, 20, I'm 26 years old, coming on 27, and I'm questioning everything in my life. I'm questioning, am I good enough? I remember going on these bike rides, thinking like, man, like, did I lose? Like, you know, like when you see an older athlete, just doesn't have it anymore. Like, you, guys you, you were thinking, is that me? I was thinking, like, maybe that is me. Maybe I'm just so yeah. mentally abrasive that I'm not willing to accept it. That my mind is stronger than actually my body. That my body is just breaking down. I just yeah. don't have it anymore. My hips are getting tighter. My strokes are getting too short. I'm not fluid. I don't have, I don't have the feeling anymore. I don't have the... The, 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 the elasticity, the, just, just the electric. Everything. The electric. What made me me yeah. when I was younger. And... Uh, and that's what, f- I was going to stay in Salt Lake City and train with the team. And then one week after the world championships, after I got back, I, I, I remember like looking at my calendar and being like, I know what I need to do. I need to go and like, I just need to go and have this deeper kind of moment. And that's what I did is I went and spent the next four months essentially tr- designing my own training program and, and just spending hours and hours and hours a day um, alone, training alone and, and being possessed by the feeling that I had at the world championships and that proved to be an excellent motivator. Mm. And one in which I started to understand that like, maybe you actually don't have what you think you had in the past. And I was battling some other equipment issues. We don't have to go into details, but essentially the pair of skates that I skated on from 1999 until 2003, I had retired that pair of skates. And I had moved on to several- Wait, the same exact pair or same model? The exact boot you- and skate. You wore the same ones from, for Well, five I years? would change the blade, but the actual shoe, the boot no was way. the same. You would think you'd have like a locker room full of skates and it's like- Because they're all built, they're all custom. So yeah. they have these small, minute levels of feeling differences. So later on in my career, you know, that pair of skates from 99 to 2003, I was at my best. Like I felt like this was what skating was supposed to feel like. And so when I talk about these things like feeling, like when you go and walk, it feels natural to you, right? Yeah. Like just walking through the airport or walking upstairs. When I put those skates on, it felt natural to me. And then when I retired those skates and I tried to replicate that feeling, I couldn't find it. And it was, that was painful. Because I was feeling like no matter what I did, I was at 80%. No matter what I did, no matter how hard I was training, no matter anything, I felt like the, the skates were holding me back in a certain perspective. And that was really hard for me to, to, to deal with because you know, I would- the coach, well, there's not much else. Like that's kind of your <clears throat> only piece of equipment other than your body. Yeah, well, there's I mean? other, like, other pieces, but that's the major, right. that's the main ones. And so, and, and then I had to come to terms with like, hey, look, like maybe you'll never find that feeling again. And I had 11 pairs of boots that I had made um, from 2004 till 2010, and I yeah. used one pair the entire time, and it wasn't that original pair. And, and essentially, I came to terms and said, like, look, like no matter what you do, you maybe will never find that feeling again. So you need to replace it with something else, because I couldn't control it. Right? I was searching for this elusive feeling. And I'm sure golfers have this feeling, sure. you know, when you just know, you know, when, 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 you, when, you, when you hit and it just, I couldn't find it. And I, actually, I still didn't get it at the end. Dude, you know who has it is surfers. So surfers, you know, their boards are all handmade. And so they'll come in and they'll ask for these like micro changes. And a lot of times when they get on a board that feels, I mean, it's foam, right? So they dent and ding and break and stuff. And so a lot of times what will happen is when they, they find the one that feels like, like an extension of themselves, mm-hmm. 
they take it, they package it, and they store it for a big competition. Smart. And all of them have secret equipment. But I thought it would have been the same with skating. I thought you would have had like 65 boots. You're talking about a career, like a one of the most uh, like impressive Olympic careers, and you had two pairs of skates pretty much the whole I time. I skated, well, I skated on four pairs, but I really, the you know, 90 plus percent of the career was skated on two pairs of boots. Even practice and everything. Yep. Same skates. Everything. They're all carbon and they hold up and they're everything? They're carbon, Kevlar, they're, they're, they're molded around your foot. Inside you've got toe grooves. They're a little bit angled. Um, on your left is like this. You know, the, the, the blades the, and everything. the blades are off center. There's a curve to the blade because when you put 2.5 G-forces on a one millimeter piece of metal, the, it flexes. And so that flex puts still a curve a remaining curve in the blade, which allows you to curve around the corner. Dude, the science and equipment though, and even the fact that you know the percentage of drag from by position and the fact of like G-force measurement, yeah. it makes me, we're direct sellers. I'm like, if we had a fraction of that data, if we just knew, <laughs> hey, Ty, listen, you need six hours in the neighborhood yeah. for six months and it will yield this because you're talking about something where that data is way harder to get. Mm. But that's one of the next things that I wanted to, that I'm kind of fascinated with is this idea of four years of training or sometimes a lifetime of training for a 40 second to minute long race. Yeah. Um, how you deal with that, like uh, how, how, do you, how do you keep your mind, you know, we were talking about how your mind's a river of thoughts. How do you not self-sabotage in a way like where, where the moment gets so big and so much is on the line that you actually paralyze yourself? I think a lot of people with high potential, they can grasp the vastness of the, the event that's coming, but they can't perform in it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's the pressure of the moment right before the race starts. Because I was thinking the same thing. Like you go four years of training, all of a sudden it, you're, you're walking up to the starting line. Yeah in Salt Lake, in, you know, Vancouver, wherever the Olympics are, and you're just walking, like, do you start introspecting and, like, thinking, like, dang, it's all leading up to this moment? Like, or do you just focus on something in the moment to avoid having those big thoughts? I say that you will have those thoughts. Everyone has those thoughts. It's what you do with those thoughts. So do you allow the thought to hijack you? Or do you allow the thought to just be a thought and then you move on to the next thought? Mm. And the more training and the more mental training and the more visualization and sports psychology that you were able to harness and focus on, you recognize that even though on the world stage this feels like the world's biggest event, it's actually the same race. It's still four and a half laps. It's the same competitors as they were last year with the world championships. The ice conditions are similar. What's changed? Now there's just NBC lights and more fans and more people. But in reality, this, everything is the same. The numbers are basically the same. If you allow your emotional state to take you out of the game for too long, i.e. if it's an endurance race and your heart rate is spiked too early on in the race, well, you're going you're gonna to get tired faster than you normally would have. So the greater control you have over that mental mechanism mm. is really critical to having good success. That's why we've seen many people crack under pressure and those to seemingly always survive and thrive and not only that, but they actually want it. They do better when there's additional pressure because they feel like it really harnesses the power to focus in on this one singular um, task that they're doing. So I was in both camps, right? I had elements of the Olympics where it was overwhelming. The first time I stepped on the ice, man, like I remember 
like my first final in Salt Lake City is a men's 1,000 meter preliminary heat. And there was three people in the race. I had to be top two position to advance. I'd beaten, one guy was Kim Dong-Song. Wait, there was three total? You're about? There was three total. It was supposed to be four. One guy didn't show up. Oh. I don't know what happened, right? But there's three guys He now. was all shaken up with anxiety. Uh, the moment was too well, big for him. That's what happened. You had to beat Kim Dong-Song, who we, we know, yeah. known cheater. <laughs> yeah, dude. So we have, known so, so, so there's, there's three guys. I have to be top two position. One of the guys is this German guy that I've beaten. I, he's never beaten me. Um, and it was an easy race. Yeah. And I get on the ice and people start chanting my name for the first time in my life. It was, like, was like 17,000 Americans chanting my name in Team USA. And I got a guy like in like row G like with a beard like, bring home the gold, the ball. And I'm like, it's a preliminary round. I've He's like, hang back, rounds. Apollo. You know? Hang back. <laughs> yeah. And so like, I, you know, like my heart rate just, it, dude, it skyrocketed. It skyrocketed yeah. in that moment. Well, I can imagine. And so, and, and so I had to do what I was like training for. Like I, I thought I was prepared for this moment. Mm-hmm. I used to play sounds of previous Olympic crowds in my ears and close my eyes and go through that process, that mental visualization. Wow. And when I got out there, didn't matter. Wasn't even close. <laughs> I mean, forgot how could everything. Not, how could it not affect you, though? I mean, it's insane. It's, but it's an electrifying feeling. And yeah. so, and then I actually felt my heart rate just literally start like just jacking up. And so I, I crouched down like into like a squat position, and I just looked at my my laces and my skates, and I just started breathing. And I, I slowly brought the heart rate down, but that first that first race was not like it was a normal race. It's I like mean, it's like walking across a two by four on the ground, and then no problem. And then all of a sudden, that two by four is a hundred feet up in between two buildings, and you get all weird, yeah. right? It's the same. It's the same thing. Yeah. Remember but when we, for some remember reason, remember we did that at that virtual reality. That's exactly what I was yeah. thinking. Have you ever done one of those? Like one of those no, things that, where I, I can I can imagine. That's yeah, you're intense. in like a warehouse. And if you pulled the VR goggles down, but it'd they be put, like... They put an actual two-by-four on, so two on the ground. So it's wobbling. And in the game, you step on it, and it actually is wobbling. And, and it's the, like a 200-foot drop. And it trips you out. Yeah, it's like, crazy. But it's like if you lift the VR goggles down, you'd see like a guy in the back like sweeping. And you'd, I mean, <laughs> there's nothing there, but it, you get so deep in your But the head. mind is so powerful. So powerful. Right? It's so, so powerful. Who, which skaters do we hate the most? The South Koreans? We hate no skaters. The Russians? We hate no skaters. <laughs> Germans? There's no hate. No. There's, there's, look, there's, there, we had deep competitive rivalries with South Korea, um, with China, and with Canada, mm. predominantly. But the Chinese and South Korean are built different. Back to your, back to your, so let's talk about the evolution of skating, because yeah. this is cool, like, how you actually were different athletes. You yeah. were, right? Like, so maybe talk about that, because that's really fascinating. We're at a point in our business where we've talked about where we are, we've been kind of in, like, the... We're the best national skaters, but we're about to go to the Olympics. Like we've done really well, mm. but we are playing on another level now. So take us through that evolution. This is a piece that that I'm really fascinated by. Uh, in terms of like playing on a different level, or I'm talking about your your you know your strategy, your body type, your what you knew um, for your 2002 games, because your body was different. Yeah, right? as the sport evolved, the knowledge was different. You talked about but going you from the same 1.0 to 2.0 kind of thing. Right. So in in 2002. Most of the sport was really concentrated on pure speed. And that's going to sound weird because you're like, isn't that speed skating? Like, isn't, but, but it's not, strategy is such a big part of the sport that you know, we didn't really care what you did on a nine-lap race as long as you had the last two laps was the most important. Um, that was the strategy in 2002 was all about the last two-lap ballistic sprint 
did you have the gas and the juice to really explode? So that body type was also different. We were built a little bit more muscular up top and we were doing a lot of power cleans, a lot of deadlifts, a lot of, um, a lot of squats, um, a lot of upper back development to maintain that core strength and that power, sheer brute power. Um, and I was 165 pounds. And so when you fast forward four years forward in the 2006 games, the sport started to change. So the top end speed was not as important the higher end, middle end speed was, was more important for longer durations. Yeah. So instead of saying, what is your two lap um, time? Like what is your, you know, your fastest two lap time? It was, what is your fastest seven lap time? So we stopped focusing on the two laps and started focusing on the seven laps. Has everybody evolved? Do all the teams evolve kind of at the same time? Or are there some Everyone's teams- evolving. So that's the natural scientific way to do it. It's not yep. some weird money ball strategy that somebody had. No, it's the sport started it's to change. Getting, and so yeah. the athletes who were performing the best had a very particular body type. And that was predominantly the South Koreans and the Chinese. And they were very light naturally. They didn't spend a lot of time in the weight room, so not a lot of excess muscle mass. And they were extremely efficient on the ice. So I, I explain this as like when you push into the ice, you get 100% of that push is the efficiency ratio. If you're a boxer and you, hit, and you punch someone and you hit them, that impact gives you the res- response. If you miss, that takes a lot of energy out of you. If you keep punching and missing. So the heavier that you are feels like you're skating and you're only pushing 70% each time, but you're giving 100%. Mm-hmm. It's, n- it's not a good um, um, ratio for, for success. So that was in 2006. And we had changed the body types, changed the training. Um, and then in 2010, the sport changed again. And it became an extreme version of 2006 where the lightest of athletes, the most efficient of athletes were the ones that were performing well at the Olympic Games. So and what some, did those guys weigh? Well, one guy was like 127. So just little. He's light. He's 5'11", 127 pounds. Like very, very, 5'11", very, 127? Yeah, tiny, tiny guys. Very, 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 very thin. Just exposed to the world out there being yeah. a little tall guy. <laughs> yeah, but, but Massive super, quads probably. <laughs> no, really efficient. And so also something that was really important in our sport, not to get too nerdy on this, but the ice temperature and the ice texture of every single ice condition in every arena in the world is slightly different. Mm-hmm. It's like golf a little bit, right? Or it's like tennis. Yeah, green speeds and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And at the Olympics, I noticed a pattern as we were doing our analysis. It's like, why do the heavier guys in every Olympics kind of perform poorly? And it had nothing to do with their physical condition, their mental preparation. <clears throat> they simply, at the Olympic Games, before anyone is in the arena. So when we're there warming up, before all of the fans pile in, all of the NBC cameras and all of the massive lights that are normally not on inside of an arena are actually on full blast, the, the temperature the is different. The texture is different. Hmm. And the fact that we share the ice with figure skaters. So figure skating skates tomorrow, we build the ice up and we make it soft. Speed skating is the next day, we cut the ice down, we make it very thin and very hard, which gives us the grip around the corner. That back and forth ping-ponging is not good for the, what we consider the texture solidification of the ice. And so what we found was that we saw the ice meisters, right, controlling the ice and pumping the compressors to a certain standardized um, um, degree of, of ice. But when everyone was inside in the middle of winter and they've taken their, their winter coats off and it gets hot and creates a little bit of humidity, the top layer, top layer of the ice became a little bit soft. And that little bit of soft became, made it feel like a little bit sticky. And so the lighter that you were, 
the greater the ice felt for you because it was this perfect combination of grip and glide. The heavier that that you were, you sunk into that ice. Wow. And so, that makes so much sense, but it's crazy that it's that micro of a level. And it, the you know? feeling is is terrible. So, so you can tell immediately when you get like on it. It's like the difference between running on the beach or running on a track. Yeah, you could feel the impact. So you just mm-hmm. not you don't get 100% of your push. And you know when you put a lot of pressure on that right leg, which I had the greatest right leg in the world, I would crank on that right leg when there was a lot of grip, and it would propel me coming out of the corner. But when the ice conditions were like as such as the Olympics, I would crank on that right leg, and I would just slow down. It literally, I would decelerate. The complete opposite of yeah. what I've been training the past four years. Yeah. Before. And so I saw the only option and opportunity was like, I have to completely reinvent myself. I cannot show up like I did at 165 or 155. I, I just, I, I'm going to lose because I had that year too, mm. right? I saw that it, it was starting to not work anymore. And that's when I said, okay, I got I to gotta strip away everything that I know. I need to wipe away all of the preconceived notions about me being king on the ice, me being the top dog. Still retaining the confidence around the strength that I have, but also recognizing that I had a lot to work on. And that was going to require some deep, deep, deep reconstruction of my physical body and mind. And then that began that process of going from 155 to 142. And it was really painful. It was so really you painful. lost like 23 pounds overall. Like, yeah, yeah. You're, you changed your, your, your genome pretty much. So you had to like... Imagine being able to say... I had the greatest right leg in the world. <laughs> I could say it, but the, everybody would know. What could that. you say, Ty? What do you got the greatest in the world? Jeez, of? man, you're really putting me on the spot, dude. <laughs> there's so many things. No, there's and only the thing is, there's only like four the thing or five. Is he said it very, and none of us questioned. No, it. it's I've got the very, greatest right leg in the world. I clearly, would, I would say very humbly he said that. <laughs> yeah, so it's proven that he has the greatest yeah, right leg in the world. He got data to That's show what I it. thought. That's what I felt like at times. Yeah, and it's easy. Yeah. I mean, it's probably easier to sit and talk hindsight but was this a struggle like was this a a point of frustration when you're looking at this and being like man how many how many squats leg presses deadlift how much sacrifice to build myself to this now i gotta like completely change like was there frustration and a little bit of Mm. um i don't know almost like lamenting or were you like you know what the sport calls me to do this therefore whatever it takes when when you are possessed by something to where you feel like you are the underdog, you kind of don't have time to like relax and kick back and start to question. You just get up and do, right? Like this you're is- so committed that that's what has to be done. <clears throat> well, the so thing it's almost it. like anytime yeah. you lost, you weren't supposed to. It's almost like you were dominant, but you lost enough to maintain this crazy chip on your shoulder. Oh yeah at the same time, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like you went undefeated, you had some losses in there that like kept that drive going, you know? That's the beauty of the sport too, is it's really hard to be dominant in short track because of the volatility of what the sport is. And I, I hated losing, man. Like when I lost, I came back stronger every time and I trained harder every time. And it wasn't the same, you know, when I, tr- when I won, I still trained hard, but when I, when I lost is when I really started to hone in on what went well, what didn't go well? What do I need to do now? I was really good at going back to the drawing board. That was like a great strength of mine. So the worst thing that could ever happen to me or happen to the world at a world championships if we were all competing was for me to have a terrible first day and an okay second day because that third day, I'm coming with heat. Like I'm coming with fire because I feel like I've got nothing to lose. Mm. And, I, and I kept that mentality. Even though I had the target on my back, 
I operated as if I was always the underdog. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was a lack of confidence. Maybe it was an insecurity. Maybe it was a fear that someone on the other side of the world was just better. And Maybe so it was I was an awareness so- that you're at the most elite level in human history in your sport, right? Like maybe there's a certain level of humility there, not because the reality is somebody else could win and the reality is they may not be as good as you and they could still win, right? That's how short track is, right? Well, yeah. It's like crashes, all kinds of crashes, things. Crashes, disqualifications, there's all kinds of strategic errors that you can make. You know, I, I, I've been sick at, I would say, I've been at sick at, I was actually ill or had the flu at every Olympic Games I competed in. At some point during the games, when yeah. I'm there for like four weeks. Yeah. Every games. Like, because what the of hell? the travel and just everything. <laughs> Last Olympics, year, February, man. didn't get sick. Year before that, didn't get sick. Year before that, didn't get sick. Now I'm sick at the Olympic Games? Yeah. Like, what is this? So is that in your head? Are you succumbing to something? Mm. There's all kinds of weird psychological games that you play with yourself when you're at an Olympic Games. And everyone prepares differently. Everyone responds differently. Michael Phelps does things differently that I didn't do. Right before he gets in the start block, and, and the way that he prepares mentally, how a track and field uh, a sprinter does it, how Usain Bolt does it, right? He's like so loose and happy and flexible and malleable, and that's how he generates speed. Is this like a happy-go-lucky? He's not tense and holding himself back. Yeah. And so there's all these different mechanisms uh, in how we perform. Walk us through your first gold medal. First gold medal was the men's 1500 meters in Salt Lake City in 2002. <clears throat> um, I, had a, I, I had stitches in my left leg because previously I'd fallen in that silver medal match. And, <clears throat> and during the same Olympics? Same Olympics. So yeah. was <clears throat> that about a week the, later? Uh, a week later. About a week later. Yeah. So it, it's the men's 1500 meter final. Um, wait, hold on. Before you get into that, the, the, you told the story to a group earlier today. That was our leadership on the West Coast. Um, this is going out to the whole company. I kind of want them to hear maybe an abbreviated version of that silver medal melee that yeah. took place. I didn't okay. realize then, your leg was stitched I mean, because that's, yeah. I, I mean, would you say that might be your most dramatic finish to a race that you've had? It's, it, it's the most memorable medal that I've ever had in my life. It's the most important medal. And it was your I've first? Won. And it was my first medal. And the color was not gold. That, I think, is the... That's the question, yeah. That's the question. And people are like, what? Wait, 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 wait I don't understand. Mm. Why is that, you've got all these other medals, why is that the medal that's so important? A, it's the first medal. B, it was at a time, 2002, six months after, you know, September um, 11th happened in New mm. York and in, in, in our country. America was reeling, people were hurting, they were deeply in need of the Olympic Games. Salt Lake City came together to host this beautiful display of what the Olympic spirit meant mm-hmm. and also the American spirit because we had been fractured. We had been brought to our knees. We had been knocked down. And people were deeply, deeply angry and in fear and lots of uncertainty. And the Olympic Games comes along and we've got these athletes that NBC decides to shine a light on and tell their story of perseverance and grit and going through the process and representing all of us Right? Theoretically, they're representing us out there. It's the best way for us to do it without going to war. It's to show that we are the best and how we carry ourselves on and off the field of play. I don't know any of this meant, right? I'm, I'm like 19 years old. Like I'm 19 going on 15 at those games. <laughs> and you know, walking into the opening ceremonies, that's when it became very visceral and powerful to me that this was bigger than what I thought a short track speed skating arena was. And that there was a lot of emotions involved and a lot of complexities that I didn't truly understand when I saw special forces teams and snipers on the roofs of the downtown Salt Lake City buildings as we were walking into the then called the Delta Center, which Mm -hmm. is the Devon Center now. 
um, arena. And, you know, and feeling and seeing that flag, the American flag being brought in from New York and men and women who had lost family members who were part of that and people, you know, putting their hands together, having a moment of silence. I mean, there was, people were deeply emotional. This is a very important time for us to show that we weren't going to stay on our knees, that we weren't going to stay knocked down. And in that race, I was supposed to win. I was so dominant the year before. Dude, I won almost every single race the year before. I w- this was my time. I was at my peak. I was on home turf. I was an American. I was in the final. I had the strategy. Everything was great. And the strategy was perfect. I was going to make my attack earlier than normal. So I attacked with two and a half, almost three laps to go, which is uncharacteristic of me at the time. I would have waited another lap. I said, I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to win this thing outright. And so I did that. And two and a half laps ago, I put the afterburners on. I'm going as hard as I can, fighting with this Chinese guy on the side. He goes down, you know, essentially a quarter of a lap remaining in the race. So call it three seconds remaining. A South Korean athlete falls into my hip. I fall down. He falls down, takes down the Canadian behind us. The Chinese guy already fell down. So that's four out of five in the race have fallen down. Half lap behind this Australian guy who was out of the race. He's just lucky to be in Salt Lake like, that day. What in the world? <laughs> the golden horseshoe. He comes around the last corner. He's like, oh, shit. got his one gold medal. <laughs> like, in his mind, he's like, God, I flew all the way here from Australia. I'm in last place. <laughs> no, dude, like, that guy what is like, going on? And then he's like, what? Remind me to come back to he Steve, was his name right. is Stephen Bradbury. Stephen Bradbury always finishes last knowing that someday, some way, we're gonna everyone start else will it, We're going to start calling it a Bradbury anytime. <laughs> yeah, freaking that. That's what it's called in Australia. No yeah. way! Yeah. That's what it's actually called. Yes, everyone calls you in Bradbury. You win the lottery? That's a Bradbury. That's a Bradbury, dude. By the way, that guy went on. So you all crashed. So we we all crashed. Uh, You know, I didn't know what happened. I ended up like, because of, you know, I felt like with my back going this way as if I was going to hit this wall So you didn't see it coming. My feet and I, 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 no, I I mean, I didn't see it coming. I I felt it, right? But, you know, I got turned around. I fell, cut myself, basically like a knife wound in my own left leg, um, scrambled onto my feet, and then I slipped, and then I threw my skates across the finish line. Like skates first. Skates first, because we measure by skates, not by, by chest, like track and field. Um, and I didn't know what happened. I'm like discombobulated. I get off the ice. I rip this, the racing suit down. I see the, the hole in my leg. I call my physio guy on the radio. Hey, you know, Apollo's cut. Come in the locker room. He comes in. He's bright, starry-eyed. And he's like just so much gratitude. He's like, dude, that was, that was amazing. This, this guy is from Boston. And he's like, that was, that was literally the most amazing race I've ever seen in my life. And it was at that moment that I was like, he is, he is so right. Like, I, I have two options here. I can either dwell in this natural human emotion reaction, which was, it was taken from me. I was supposed to win. I'm bitter, angry, and upset. That's a natural, which I've been you fine. You worked your entire say. life for that moment. My whole, well, pretty young, but yeah, like uh, I, years for that moment. Yeah. And as I walk out, as I'm thinking, as they, you know, as they, 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 they quickly stitch me up and they, I've got ice there and, I'm going out, and this reporter sticks this microphone in my face. He's like, oh, Paula, you know, did you, how does it feel to have lost the gold medal? Tell us how you felt. <laughs> and, you know, I was like, oh, I didn't lose the gold medal. I won the silver. And I remember going and, and getting out of the, this wheelchair and then running out, jogging out onto the podium and then putting my arms up as if I won the gold. 
because I, I don't know what possessed me to do that, but I was like, I just want to show every single person in here that we won this. Like, we won this medal. The color, whatever. We won this medal. And that somehow, I didn't know it, that somehow really meant a lot to, to people, which was told to me many times by many other people who were in Salt Lake at the time. And I think it was just representative of what we were going through as a country is we were knocked down, we could have stayed down, we could have cowered, we could have stayed away, or we could rise regardless of outcome and continuously keep pushing on. And it was like what my dad told me that quote, right? Don't ask whether you will win or lose. That's not your true account. It's not in your entire, you can't control every aspect of that. Your account is to make sure you continue on, push your struggle further, keep kicking the ball down the road, keep showing up, right? As, as your brother said. And, and that is the emphasis, I think, of what we're going like in 2020 in, in COVID is, you know, people begin the year, had spectacular goals and dreams. And like that, you're brought to your knees. You're humanized. You are, your ego is squashed. You are human like anyone else. And anything can happen to you at any second moment in time. And your natural human reaction is to, cr- is to cry foul. And rightfully so. You have that right to do that. But how you respond after you can get yourself together is going to be a defining moment, I think. And that's why that medal was so powerful to me is because that lesson has carried and shown itself many, many, Mm -hmm. many times throughout my life. In the sport, in personal relationships, in my engagement, in the relationship with my father, in business, with friends, um, with with everything. And, And a deeper appreciation for, for what I've been given. so. Uh, but still winning yeah. the gold. And then the next race, I won gold. But man, that's um, such a beautiful thing yeah. to be a part of because what, like, you got a chance to represent the country at one of the most historic times mm-hmm. that, yeah. it's like the, it's the time of our lives, right? Like, yeah. every, the, the 9-11 is the thing for us, right? And the yeah. fact that we needed the games and we needed to, to, you know, have restored what it means to be that American fighting spirit and the fact that you had, you could have lost the perspective and totally forfeited the opportunity mm. to feel something that nobody else on the planet has felt. Yeah. That's and it, incredible. It, and I think it was, it was you know, I, I look back on that and I, I look at my punk kid self and I laugh and I see those interviews and <laughs> kind of shake my head. And, and, and it's, it's just, it's so interesting to see how, you know, my father came to this country and he had big dreams and hopes and aspirations for me. And it failed the first time because I threw it away. And then I tried a second time. And that time didn't actually work out in the way that we thought it would. But it turned out to be the single most important race of my life. And that lesson from that race is the most single most important aspect of all of my Olympic experiences. All of them. Is that you are not defined by the metric and the outcome that you thought you deserved. It's what you did in response to that. When you didn't get what you wanted, when you didn't get what you thought that you deserved, when you failed miserably at the thing that you were touting and you were screaming at the top of your lungs, this is the next greatest thing, and you fell right on your face, that's okay. It's what you do next yeah. and what you do with that. And to me, that, that's a fundamental lesson that I think you know, every entrepreneur, every great leader, every great motivational, inspirational person who's talking on online content today, like we aspire to be those things because the human condition is that powerful. If I can do it being a kid from, you know, from Federal Way, from Seattle, from the Pacific Northwest, 
and another guy can do it. And we hear countless stories around the world of people being able to do it. Why can't those who are watching this also figure it out? Doesn't have to take you to fail to the point of no return to where your back's against the wall. If you already are, great. Then you've got no other option but to go straight up, right? But if you're not, you don't have to self-sabotage to get to that bottom layer to use the springboard to bounce higher. You can figure it out now. So no one's got an excuse. You know, that's, that's, yeah. that, that's the thing. You, uh, you were recently featured in the HBO documentary, The Weight of Gold. Yeah. And um, these stories are so awesome. Like, I, I, I'm in shock, or I'm like in awe of them that that's been your experience. And <laughs> at the same time, I love learning from them. But what's it like to go from this type of competitive, significant arena to retirement? I mean, it's not like... You know, you do okay with endorsements and things like that. Some people, like, you know, some of like you guys that were like the faces of the Olympics do all right with, with money. But most of the people that are experiencing these highs, they don't get to retire. They don't get to just, you know, buy a house in the hills and be done. So what's, <laughs> what's that like when your whole world is this one thing yeah. and then all of a sudden it's not anymore? That identity crisis, that great divorce that occurs, that breakup happens, that you know, on day 23 of the Olympic Games, the day after closing ceremonies. And, you know, you look to sport to give you more guidance into what direction to go. And sport tells you, like, I've loved you, but I no longer love you anymore. This is over. Doesn't matter what you do, this is over. Freaking We're done. sport, man. I'm gonna, get I, you. I found someone who's younger, more attractive, better, <laughs> greater story, genetically designed, and is just going to do better than you ever possibly could imagine. That's, that's the conversation you actually have. And then if you don't have that conversation over and over and over again, uh, you will be tied to the sport and the identity that is just one facet of who you are. It's one facet. There's many facets of our personalities. No matter which career path, no matter what you're doing, whether you're in sales, whether you're in accounting, whether you're leading the company, whatever it is, it's one part of who you really are. And as athletes, we were never taught that we have other parts of us. We thought that we are just machines. You are designed to go and churn metals. I don't blame anyone or the USOPC or the US you know, Olympic Committee. I, I, that's the business of the, that's the game. I signed up for the game. I'm okay with that, right? I willfully so. And I do it again tomorrow. Um, but there is a deeper texture and conversation associated where there's lots of psychological challenges associated with being externally validated only by the medals. And if you don't get what you sought after 16 years of preparation, and you feel like you failed in that, and that sport still gave you some level of confidence and strength and support, and now you're going out into the real world with no collegiate experience, no business experience, You've, you're basically personal development skills is, is relegated to that of the locker room, which is your teammates, which I wouldn't, I love my guys and, and, and all the women on our team, but it's not like it's the most aspirational personal development team on the planet because we're sure. just skating. And so you now have to start to recognize I'm starting from scratch, I'm not the best at something. I'm actually brand new baby. And maybe I'm actually really behind. And so what do I need to do today to start winning before noon? That's the first step. What do I need to do today so I can win before, it, before the clock hits 12? And then tomorrow, what's the first thing I gotta do before the clock hits 5 p.m. and then 7 p.m. and then next week and then next month? And that progress begins. For me personally, I did what I was very lucky and blessed to do. I hit the ground running. So I was deeply afraid of not finding a passion that I loved as much as speed skating. And I was right, man. To this day, haven't found it. Really? Have not found it. Yeah. Nothing will replace that moment. I've just come to terms with that. 
and I'm able to replace that expectation with a newfound curiosity to grow and learn, to meet new exciting people, to go to different worlds and, and, and areas of our country and, and you know, this planet and explore these opportunities in a way that I'm just appreciative of. But it required me to first say yes to everything, which, which I've toned back and saying much more no to a lot of things, but saying yes to a lot of stuff. And really just diving deeper in terms of full immersion of what and trying to explore, what can I possibly be good at? But the, the beauty of the documentary, The Weight of Gold, is it rips open the curtain of this preconceived conception and notion that Olympic athletes are these stoic, hardened, don't need any help individuals who are indestructible in nature and that we all aspire to be. Yes, there's elements of that. Sure. But beneath that armor and layer are usually fractured, broken, um, deeply insecure and in fear people. And I think they use sport as a way to express that insecurity and self-doubt or fear, whatever it is. If that, and I call them, I call the sport is the guardrails. Right? If your metric is still here and you're here and you're a pinball machine, these are the guardrails, you're just ping-ponging back and forth. You can use the sport to guide you towards that goal, which is the Olympic Games. As soon as you retire, boom, guardrails go flat and you've got nowhere else to go. And so you are now stuck with yourself and the world trying to figure out what to do next, which is, which is actually amazing. Right? So you now have an opportunity to go and explore. And you know, the, the, the biggest issue that I think most Olympic athletes, including myself, had faced early on in the retirement is feeling like whatever you did before won't work now. And there's elements of it that yeah. won't, but a lot of the fundamental attributes that taught you around strength and hard work and discipline and scheduling, perseverance, reinvention, adaptation to any environments, that's what we wanna hire in organizations. We want guys who operate with that level of ethos and mantra. Show me, if I throw you any problem, you'll figure it out. That's what we want, we seek that. Now, Olympic athletes, they have that because that's what we're given on a daily basis. When it gets hard, I don't wanna see you back down. I wanna see you figure out creatively a way through. And we don't feel like that is relevant because I'm not going in circles anymore wearing skates. Mm -hmm. It's just changing the paradigm and the mechanism of thought. And it took me a few years to really, really feel that I could make that progress to say, hey, I know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know how to, I know how to proceed forward. Yeah, it's still, it's almost like it's still athletics. It might be a little bit different of a sport, but it's, it's still the movements that you understand. The mind game it's still similar. the thought well, process that you understand. Our, our company, I mean, we call ourselves or we call it the league and everything is essentially sports terminology and sport. It's like we, we, we tried to take, and we have a lot of former college athletes, high school athletes that work for us. And we've tried our best to replicate that team competitive environment with everything that we do from our incentives to the way that we do recognition, just all those different things. Mm. And it's like we're trying to figure out the, the, the next best thing to being on a competitive sports team, you know? Right. And yeah. it's like that's really what we've kind of modeled our, our sales org after. So it's good to have something you can put your heart into. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like in, in whatever capacity, like you're doing it now, you know, you do it in business and you do it in your like philanthropic efforts and, and even like the passion that you bring to our group in this podcast, like you do that now. Like mm -hmm. that's the thing I had this thought the other day, if you have like a fitness goal, because people a lot of times think, okay, I'm going to get this much money and then I'm going to just stop. I'm just <laughs> going to stop. Yeah. 
I've worked my whole life and then I'm just going to stop. Never happens. Yeah, but think about it. You would never say, hey, listen, I want to get to this fitness goal and then I'm going to stop working out. It's like, oh, cool, I got there. Because obviously you atrophy and you don't stay there very long. But it's the same thing, right? And I actually respect that about your story that you've found ways to take the same things, not really even slow down and look around, which I don't know if that's healthy or not, but it seemed to work for you and just throw it right into something else. And, you know, you're, you're here before us, grateful and engaged and, and advancing. And I don't even think the medals will be the greatest thing that you ever do, right? And, which is a pretty incredible, like, mindset to have. So, I hope so. Yeah, I, I think so. If I can be prescriptive, I prescribe that to you. I think, uh, <laughs> I, think there's, I think there's more ahead. Hey, man, as a father of three and a father of five, there's a, a lot more good to come. Yeah, you were so, saying what's your awesome. next thing. I think once you have a, a child, yeah. that kid's going to get hit with this cosmic, like, so much intention. It's like just the, the, the cycle yeah. will continue, you know? I mean, I, I look forward to that. I look forward to seeing if I can live up to how my, my dad taught me some of these lessons early. Um, I think it's a scary time to have kids. You know, I think it's a different world. I'm it sure. Is. I'm sure. You know, you, you know what that looks like. But, you know, being able to provide and be a part of that contribution to to someone who's you know a part of your family is is important. And I, I am passionate. You know, like on on. I, I was never a Navy SEAL. I was never in the military. I've got a deep, profound respect for those who have served, and I've just always looked at certain people and seeing how they operate as a unit, as a team, that we are doing something beyond just whatever you feel about the military, whatever you feel about this thing, it does, take that stuff, it doesn't matter. Look at these guys in terms of how they're operating and they are operating as a unit. There's nothing greater than trust, right? They have to trust. They're operating with the highest levels of consequences possible. They have to be at the most elite levels of physical and mental performance at all hours of the day, at any time, the snap of a finger. And I was like, man, I'm an Olympic athlete wearing tights, skating around an ice rink. Like, I want to be like those warriors. Yeah. So I, dro- I, I, I got a lot of inspiration from that. And I think we have the ability now with the access to technology to learn from some of these people, to learn from Olympic athletes, from those who've served, from servicemen, from our parents, from people who are around us for those types of insights. And then I'm most and deeply passionate about how I can contribute back. So the time spent with your guys today, you know, my visualization last night and this morning about how can I contribute in some capacity to give them something that they haven't heard before. It's gonna be hard. They listen to a lot of great speakers. There's so much content out there. What type of insights can I help to help instigate that light switch to go on in a couple of them? Some of them who've been doing well but you all know that once the light switch goes on, those guys are just quantum leaping. Yeah. And we know when that light switch goes on. And that's, I just want people to recognize that inner power is a part of being human. And it's an untapped reservoir of potential that we all need to, to eagerly be reaching for. Because once we get there, man, it's, life is different. The metric of money and whatever these things are, use them. That's fine. Those are bullseyes, man. Keep, keep firing at those bullseyes. Trying to hit the target every time. That's the goal, right? But there's something more equally rewarding when you have all these elements of progressing through life and seeing the improvements for you in your human experience. I can't replace the words for what that actually is. 
You've done a good job, though. You got pretty close. And don't sell yourself <laughs> short. The tights and the, the I, I mean, you took a blade to the inner thigh. <laughs> you got you shaved, know what I mean? And yeah, but I shaved in myself. the movie, <laughs> yeah, by the true. way, in the movie, you almost lose your leg. Yeah, right? that's right. And happens. you win the gold medal a week later. Right. I'm uh, just one, so. right, one, one good right leg. Yeah, that's one right. good, one, the, <laughs> the best, best right, right leg, leg in the world. <laughs> Luckily, it was your left leg that took the blade. You know? Hey, Apollo, man, thank you so much. You spent most of the day with us today, yeah. and uh, you've added tremendous value to our group. And again, I've said it before, you speak the language and I, I really appreciate your insight and you've added a lot of value today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you guys, Thanks, that, are, guys. that are tuning in. This has been another episode of Electric People with Apollo Ono. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in joining our teams, check us out at viventsolar.com forward slash careers. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes and subscribe. Leave us a great review and leave us a five-star rating. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.